Thank you, Gail. It's so awesome to hear what God is doing in a fifth grade classroom halfway across the world. What a blessing. <clears throat> hey, we're going to be studying God's Word. You guys ready? Awesome. We just sang that uh, and declared with our voices, holy is the Lord. He is holy here and He is holy in Papua New Guinea. He's holy all over the planet, and we get to sing His praise here. We're going to continue to do so this morning as we conclude and wrap up the book of James. Um, my name is Jake, I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the awesome opportunity to, to teach from God's Word, and I'm stoked about it. You guys stoked? Stellar. Well, we've been through uh, James here these summer months, and uh, we've been finding encouragement. We've been finding lots of challenge uh, throughout um, this uh, awesome letter that James, the brother of Jesus, has been guiding us through, has written uh, for us and our eyeballs to read. It was originally to a Hebrew audience who also needed James's encouragement and challenge. And so for me, it's been an incredible journey. This summer, my, my faith has grown and been stretched in uncomfortable ways because of James. And I hope it has been for you as well. We're going to be in James chapter 5 and uh, verse 13 where we're starting here in a minute. But first I want to kind of take us back. Take us back in time, uh, deep into the Old Testament to, to convey a great truth to you church family. It begins with this uh, man who's well-dressed, he's well-liked, and he's uh, well-established within his community. It's the kingdom, and this man's name is Obadiah. And Obadiah is a servant of the king. He's a staffer. He does what the king needs when he needs it. And so the king tasked him with this task of a real estate uh, venture. And so the, the king went one way, Obadiah went another and Obadiah was a God-fearing man, but King Ahab was not. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, if you're familiar with those names at all, led the kingdom of Israel into apostasy, which is just a big fancy word to say, away from God. Obadiah is walking knowing that behind him is not God-fearing people. And he's walking, he's doing his task and approaches him, in walks this hairy, smelly, oddly dressed mountain man. And because Obadiah is a God-fearing man, he recognizes this mountain man to be Elijah, the great prophet of Israel. And they have this conversation and uh, Elijah says, hey, would you, would you do me a favor? Go, go tell Ahab, King Ahab, that I'm here, and I want to have coffee with him. No, he doesn't want to have coffee. He's going to share some words, okay? That's what prophets do. It's kind of what they do. And so he says, I want to talk with this non-God-fearing king of Israel because God is tired of his children following false gods. So Elijah had this conversation with King Ahab, and he said, hey, it's not going to rain here for... A pretty long time. It's going to be a drought. And it's not going to rain again until I say so. 
That makes a king pretty happy, I would imagine. Some weird-looking mountain man telling him this. And so Elijah prayed, and then it didn't rain for three and a half years. During that time, God provided for Elijah. He lived up in a cave, mountain man, okay? Uh, He lived in this cave, and there was a brook where he was given water, and ravens flew in food for him. It's like Uber Eats all over. It's it's crazy. (laughs) So Elijah's in this cave, and he's just waiting on God. And he's talking with God. He's just waiting on God. Eventually, the brook dries up, and the ravens, uh, they're price goes up so they don't come anymore Um, but God tells him to go down to this town and to find a widow because the widow is going to provide for Elijah and so he finds this widow in this town and he goes the widow knocks on the door and says hey you got food for me right and she's like nah and he goes in well it's okay because God's going to provide and Elijah prays and God provides and fills her pantry with oil and flour. Unlimited. And Elijah passionately prays for this. Later on, it's three and a half years, so it's kind of a long time. Later on, the widow's son then dies. And Elijah prays passionately over this dead boy's body that God might give it life. And he does. God answers Elijah's prayer. And the boy is alive. And he's rejoicing because he's not dead anymore. The widow's rejoicing because she got her son back. Elijah's rejoicing. And then the time comes and Elijah has yet another coffee meeting with the king. And he challenges him. He challenges his prophets of Baal and Asherah, these false gods, to an epic god battle on a mountain. And if you're familiar with the story, you know well the fake gods are crushed by the loss from their gods not showing up. And then furthermore, they're destroyed by the one true God, Yahweh, as the altar Elijah built, which is now drenched in water, soaked in water, consumed completely by the fires from heaven. God showed up. Yahweh is the real deal and is more powerful than anything that we may distract ourselves with. Anything that is our false God. So then, once God was on display for all distracted non-believers to see, Elijah passionately prays yet again, and it began to rain. After three and a half years, the drought was over. As we see in our text of Scripture today, James references the great prophet Elijah. He doesn't cite Elijah to draw attention to these crazy, intense, miraculous, uh, wonderful things that Elijah had his hands in. It was the prayers of Elijah that mattered. And that is why James brings Elijah into the last part of his letter. Because the prayers of a righteous person have great power. Turn with me to James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. James uh, is a letter near the end of the Bible. 
right after the book of Hebrews, but before first and second Peter. We're going to be in chapter 5, which is the last bit, starting verse 13 through the end of the letter. Follow along with me as I read aloud. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Jesus, this is, this is your gospel truth. These truths, may they not just penetrate our minds, but penetrate our hearts this morning. May we have open ears to hear your word. May we be challenged and encouraged by your servant, James, this morning. Jesus, bless this time in your precious name. Amen. So James begins this final section of his letter with, in every moment, pray. In every moment, pray. Are you suffering? Are you in it deep? Pray. Are you stoked? Are you overjoyed with what's going on in your life right now? Pray. Praise. Sing. Are you ill or are you sick? Pray. If prayer is honestly the natural response for you in those situations, then awesome. Keep it going. You're doing great. But if you are more like me, when suffering comes about and instead you turn to anger, you turn to self-pity or complaining, or, or maybe when you're cheerful and you're filled with happiness, you just forget about God, then these truths in James are for us. And James knows a, a thing or two on this matter of prayer. He's known uh, by historians uh, to have hardened camel-like knees. Great description of a human being. Hardened camel-like knees from all the time that he spent on his knees in prayer. Talking with God on behalf of others. He not only heard and observed his big brother Jesus and his teachings on prayer, but he lived it out. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, not, uh, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just listen to what is said and taught. Act it out. And that's what James did. Hold on. 
okay? Because there's some extra stuff here. It's not as simple as just, in every situation, pray. There's some extra stuff attached to the question, who among you is sick? What it says is, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's not just pray alone this time. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of prayer throughout this, but there is other stuff too. Stuff that tends to be controversial. So let's jump into it, cool? Some nervous laughter, that's great, I love it. (laughs) That's what I thought when I was reading it. Okay, healing ministry. Healing ministry within the church, according to James's letter here, states that firstly, it is to be initiated by the sick person. Not by a pastor, an elder, a mentor, but by the sick person. The request for prayer from an elder must come from that sick individual. They also ought, before calling the elders, confess all known sins before God. Confession is a major theme in this conclusion of James. This act of confession is between the sick person and God alone. Whatever is unrepented, whatever is unaddressed, in humility call out to God for the forgiveness of those sins. And we've got to be careful here because James is not saying that the sick person is sick because of their sin. You've got to be careful here. Pastor Ed actually gave us a great example last week from his text in James, from the life of Job. What we know of Job, he was a truly sick individual, not because of anything he did wrong or any sin that he had, but the inflicting pain was brought on by the evil one. Not all sickness is inflicted by sin. For Job, it certainly was not. But James would also be aware of some of the other New Testament teachings, the teachings of his big brother, Jesus, who shared words with the paralytic, uh, yeah, paralytic, there we go, at Bethesda in John chapter 5. Jesus tells and declares to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. This example clearly pointing to the potential that his illness and paralysis was linked to his personal sin. All to say, if you are sick, before you call the elders to pray over you, confess all your known sins after examining your life and confessing humbly to God to forgive those sins. And then after all the sins are confessed and the Holy Spirit is prompting you, call the elders. They want to pray over you. They're in that role for a reason. And they will give a prayer of healing. So don't hesitate. Don't hesitate with this. We live in a culture uh, and a time that consists uh, of opinions that this option is preposterous. 
There are doctors, there's medicines, there are mechanisms in place to work on your healing, and those things should be sought after indeed, absolutely. But is the first place that we go prayer or our own solutions? Do we address the creator of the universe first, or do we put him on the bottom of the list? passage goes on, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing with oil, scientifically, sounds crazy. But God is anything but crazy. He is about our faith and trust in him and our devotion to his will and his control. The oil is entirely symbolic. There's no healing properties to it. It just promotes the healing. It's not medicinal to help the pains of dying lessen, it follows the prayer of faith. That the elders pray over you and is symbolic of being set apart for the work of the Holy Spirit and His will. The caring hands of the elders in administering the symbolic oil is a profound means for comfort and encouragement for those who are sick. The anointing of oil is not the main idea here in the passage. It's not the most important piece to what James is trying to convey to his audience. The prayer of faith is the most important thing. The prayer of faith is key to the ministry of healing. For it's not the elders who do the healing. There's nothing mystical about our church elders. They're pretty awesome. There's, they're not the ones doing the healing. It is God alone. He just chooses to utilize His faithful and righteous servants to be the agents of His will. This week I was able to connect uh, with our amazing elders and, uh, uh, who faithfully serve our church family. We've got some incredible elders here. And I, I talked to them uh, on this passage over email, and here's, uh, I just want to highlight something that they had to say that I think speaks into the heartbeat of our leaders here at the church, and where it is we stand on the ministry of healing. It says, God's word tells us there is no limit to God's power. Do we believe this? We see calling the elders to pray over someone as an act of faith. An act of faith that we see and talked about in chapter 1 is the testing of our faith and the faith with works in chapter 2 of James. God may or may not choose to deliver a gift of healing according to His will, but do we have faith that He could? Do we have faith that God can heal today, church family? Are we willing to confess sins and beckon our elders for prayer? Not only for our physical healing if we are sick, but our spiritual healing, healing the forgiveness of our sins. The commentator Kent uh, Hughes says this, the prayer of faith comes from a faith in the Almighty God who sovereignly carries out His will. Nothing is beyond Him. He can heal anyone, anytime. And He will and He does heal today, working all things for His glory. There's so much more to this piece, these two verses in the end of James. And I wish we had like 14 more hours to go over it, but we don't. So 
we're going to continue on in the uh, conclusion of um, James's letter. But if you have further questions, we would love to talk with you. I know the elders would love to pray with you. For there is great power in prayer. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The power of prayer is greatly described uh, in the great preacher of the 4th century, Pastor John Antioch of, of Antioch. He had this to say about the power of prayer. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There it is, in all-sufficient display, a treasure undiminished, a, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the foundation, the mother of a thousand blessings. None of what John, Pastor John here, was saying is exaggerated. It's all truth being spoken truthfully. Prayer has the power to do these things. Do we believe it? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's important to observe uh, that this verse does not say the prayer of a spiritual elite. The prayer of a person who's holier than thou. It states that the prayer of someone who has within them the imputed righteousness from Christ and lives morally righteous in his life, this person and his prayer has great power. If you've uh, not been to one of the cathedrals anywhere in like Europe, there's some great cathedrals here in the States as well, uh, but you ought to go, okay? Um, either that or you can watch Rick Steves give a tour on PBS. Either way. Whichever way, these immense architectural beauties are just awe-inducing. When you enter, there's some key features that set it apart from like different from our church here, right? You might walk in and you'll see some relics in its interior and there's some like closet like small rooms for the public to utilize. These are confessionals, right? The Roman Catholic practice of confession where there's a physical place for you to go and repent and confess of your sins to a priest and then the priest forgives you. They almost got it right. There is no human being that can forgive absolutely another person's sin. It is only through the work of the cross of Christ that sins are forgiven. Amen? 
debts are paid in full. Confession, according to James, is in fact mutual. To one another, his text says. Not only to the priest or the pastor in a certain spot in the church building. How great a testimony would it be for the whole of the Catholic Church to institute this bit from James where they're still in, the, in their confessionals, but the person enters and there's a mutual confession and not just a one-way. The humility that it would produce would overwhelm the planet because with confession brings great humility. And I say this about the Catholic Church, but church family... We're not that much better. Are we confessing to our brothers and sisters? Sin drives believers in Christ apart and produces individualism, which we are seeing profoundly in our culture today. The great pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II said this, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them. Confessing to another breaks the barrier of hypocrisy and allows grace to flow freely. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. And it is a dreadful blow to pride. It's going to be uncomfortable, church family. It's going to feel like the hardest thing ever. But it is so necessary. What does it look like practically? Find someone who you trust. Someone who is a righteous person, who is mature, who can pray for you and with you and hold you accountable. If the sin is against another believer, it is to that person alone that we must take our confession. The act of confessing is not itself powerful, but the resulting prayer is. Those with righteous lives are powerful in prayer. Thus, a confessing and praying church is packed with spiritual power. I'm going to say it again. Those with righteous lives are powerful in prayer. Thus, a confessing and praying church is packed with spiritual power. It's God convicting us to make confession and seek the prayers of the righteous. Our act of humility might just indeed mean great blessing to the church. James's end of his letter there starts out with, in everything, pray. In every circumstance, pray. In every moment, pray. And so right now, is it not the perfect moment to pray? We're going to pause and take just a couple of minutes to pray. With all that we've gone through thus far in the passage, I know uh, I have a number of things that I need to be confessing to God. That I may be led to confess to a brother. 
in preparation for this morning, I have uh, a need to act upon what James has written. And I want to give us all an opportunity to be in prayer right now. If you need to just be silent before God right now, then sit and be still. If it's a confession of sin, confess to God because He forgives. If there are sins in your life that, you, that need to be confessed to a mature Christian, a pastor, an elder, some mentor, go pray with them before we continue our praise and worship of God. If it is a confession to someone near you this morning, a brother or sister, confess to them. If it is for cheerfulness that you rejoice this morning, Praise God in prayer. If it is suffering or heaviness in your life, pray. He's listening. God desires to hear from you. This moment is a great moment for praying. So it's going to be quiet. Some people might be praying with each other. But just take this time right now in prayer. Jesus, we praise you, for you are holy. You forgive freely, a million times over. We rejoice, Father, with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. Thank you so much that we can come before you anytime and just put it all out there. And as we continue in your word now, may our hearts grow stronger to you. In your name, amen. If you didn't get an opportunity to, to maybe do what the Spirit was prompting on your heart because it would be awkward to stand up and walk over, I get it, okay? But don't let the day pass before you do. Go seek out that person who you need to confess to. Seek out for prayer from the elders. Don't hesitate. In verses 17 and 18, as we conclude here, James refers back to the story that we opened with, the story of Elijah, to further express the power that prayer has. To the Hebrew audience, James was writing to even the mention of Elijah would have caught their ear and gain their attention. He was, he was their hero, even though he was a smelly mountain man. They remembered him as fighting a life and death battle with idolatrous Ahab and Jezebel, slaying the prophets of Baal, fleeing for his life, exercising more than human power, seeing sights beyond the experience of other men, 
men raising the dead, multiplying the widow's flour and oil, eating from the beaks of ravens, feasting in the wilderness at the hands of angels, foretelling both famine and the coming of rain, outrunning Ahab's chariots to Jezreel, learning the secrets of God's presence in the caves of Horeb, and finally vanishing from the earth in a chariot of fire. James assures us that Elijah was a human just like you and me. But when you hear a list like that, it's hard to picture someone like you and me. Maybe a bit hairier and smellier and wearing strange clothes, but there was nothing mystical or magical about the man of Elijah. What sets him apart? It's the miraculous things that he was a part of through his life because he prayed. He didn't just quietly talk to God. No, it was a passionate chat that he had often with the Father. However it is, church family, that you express passion, pray to God that way. Because he delights in answering his passionate children's prayers. A great example outside of Elijah is found in 1 Samuel where Hannah, we all know maybe who Hannah is, she was a barren young lady and she was passionately praying to God for a child. She wanted a child so bad. So passionate were her prayers that Eli the priest mistook her for drunk. He interacted with her. Why are you all wind up? Why are you here? This is not the place for you to be. I don't drink, she said. I I, I don't have wine in me. I am just beckoning before God. Hannah prayed passionately, and God granted her prayer with a son. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wandering from the truth. It's apostasy. The rejection of Christianity today. The rejection of Christ and the truths of His gospel Thousands of people today change what they believe in to accommodate their moral behavior. That's wrong. The evangelist Billy Graham said this, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had an emotional religious experience However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Billy Graham preaches it, man. I was on a phone call yesterday with another ministry brother who just went and saw one of his old students get baptized. And he was really stoked about it. He was rejoicing. And the student had a pretty rocky road towards Christ. It was, it was a struggle to get to where he is today. 
But uh, the student said this of Christ. Christ as Savior, that was an easy thing. I needed a Savior. It's an easy thing to buy into. But Christ as Lord of my life, that was the hard part. And it continues to be. A daily surrender. Is Christ Lord and Master of your life? James's point is not that we're able to discern apostasy in these last two verses, but rather that we do something about it. It's a call to action, which is very common for everything in his letter, right? Go and bring him back. Restoration covers a multitude of sins, sins in the millions. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. God alone turns a sinner from his error, but God uses human agents who love him and love his people to make a difference in their lives. So like Billy Graham, great is the work of the evangelist. Saving another from spiritual death. God is using us in our giftings for his glory and the salvation of those who have wandered. Don't waste a second if there is someone close to you who has wandered from the Father. Pursue them in love. Pursue them with integrity. Always in prayer avoiding gossip and ultimately confronting them with the truth of the gospel so as to save their soul, bringing them back from death, all for Christ's glory. So it was with Israel. New rulers bring their people into apostasy, rejection of Yahweh, rejection of God. And then enters this mountain man, Elijah. Yahweh's prophet and servant. Elijah prayed, and it did not rain. And then three and a half years later, Elijah prayed again, and it rained. The power is in prayer. From the beginning of James's letter, James has been concerned that people within the visible confessing church have true faith. Faith, according to James, produces works that affect how one spends money, how he relates to the poor and to the world and to so much more. Faith shows itself in the use of the whole body, especially the tongue. Deviations in any of these areas may indicate a fake faith and the danger of apostasy. His call to keep our brothers and sisters on track is fitting in this conclusion of his great letter. Church family, let us live out our transforming faith. It is not transformed, it is transforming, constantly growing. Reclaiming wandering souls for Christ, speaking boldly and passionately in prayer for the Lord is at work. Jesus, thank you that you are working. Jesus, thank you for your, your brother, James, and his willingness to pastor us this summer. 
in challenging and encouraging ways. Lord, we, we need You as our Savior. For we are a fallen people. But even greater, we need to put You as Lord of our lives. Jesus, thank You for this church family in this place of worship. May we declare Your holiness now with our voices in loud and sweeping ways. For You are worthy of our praise. In Your name.